Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership. In each episode, we meet someone who has experienced the highs and lows of leading, in situations ranging from major combat operations to challenges in barracks. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwaj, a journalist and broadcaster and a British Army Reserve Captain with the Rifles. In this episode, we meet someone who knows that competence and skills is critical in developing trust. I think I had to utilise my kind of professional capacity and let them see that I was worth my salts, I was there to do a job. And who found value in understanding the impact of his own actions. It took me a long time, probably about a year, for it to resonate with me that it wasn't actually anybody else's fault or the way that they acted or the, the steps that they took when my incident occurred. Do a bit of root cause and corrective analysis. Ultimately, it was my behaviour that made the other people act the way that they act. Warrant Officer Class 2 Colin Russell enlisted into the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards and trained on the British Army's main battle tank, Challenger 2. He served on two tours of Optelic in Iraq before moving to the Queen's Royal Hussars, the QRH, as a corporal. As a sergeant, he commanded a QRH multiple in the light infantry role in Afghanistan on Op Herrick 15. He has been a sergeant instructor at the Heavy Armoured Wing, a squadron quartermaster sergeant, and was a lethality and survivability subject matter expert on the development of the British Army's new armoured vehicle, Ajax. In this conversation, WA2 Russell reflects on the power of professional competence and leadership, acknowledging your mistakes and some unexpected benefits of the disciplinary procedures. I started by asking him about his time in a close protection role in Iraq and what that experience taught him about constructing effective teams. What they've done is they selected people for the relevant squadrons and they picked the stronger characters, the outspoken characters. I wouldn't say I was one of the best in my squadron, but the better individual saw me each squadron, which then created a bit of a conflict when it came to decision-making because ultimately you had all these strong people within a multiple that when decisions were being made, everybody had an opinion, everybody had their two pence to put in, everybody had their take on how the operations and the events should take place and unfold. And did that make it more difficult every time you're going out to do an operation? Yeah, 100%. I, I would say that there was too many opinions, too many characters within that multiple that had a conflict interest throughout. So it strikes me as a challenge of followership in the sense of being a team, you want to be able to give your commander the options to make a decision. But when there isn't a clear hierarchy within the followers the people who are giving that information to the commander, then it can be difficult to do. What did you learn from that experience about operating in teams in future? To be honest, my take on that and the, the biggest takeaway from that was that when constructing any team, there has to be that hierarchy structure to ensure that no lines are crossed, there is no bloodlines, and people understand the rules and what they're supposed to be doing within that multiple section company platoon. So understanding your position in the order of battle? Yeah, 100%. How do you negotiate that when all the people are from the same rank? What kind of tools or practices can help make that easier to manage? So within the multiple, we had a staff sergeant leading the multiple and we had two corporals. And then the remainder were, were troopers. And as I said, every single Landshack was 
a strong Lance Corporal, majority were all new Lance Corporals, so it was like a peacock in session. People were trying to prove their worth. And what that did is it, it caused conflict within the whole multiple because we were getting the orders and then everybody was putting their two pence in, well, we should do this, we should do that, we should do the next thing. And have you ever been in a position where you've been a commander, say you've been in that corporal position or that staff sergeant position with a team like that underneath you, have you found a way to to shape that? Is it a case of taking your time with each individual to talk through what you need from them so that when it comes to those mission orders and you're developing decision making, you're giving them their boundaries? Yeah, I think ultimately understanding your roles and responsibilities when it comes to whether you're in a crew within an armoured fighting vehicle or whether you're in a multiple or a platoon or even going as high as being a squadron sergeant major, it's understanding everybody's roles and responsibilities and where they fit within the bigger picture. And so you went on then to be a corporal and a corporal is commanding tank and that's your main role that you're doing. And you were based in Germany with the Scots DG, but you chose to transfer to the Queen's Royal Assars, the QRH, who also used Challenger 2. What were your reasons for making that decision and what were the initial challenges you found moving into a new cat badge? So I, um, I promoted pretty fast. I picked up my full screw at my four and a half year point and at the time, McKinney chain of command said, look, you're miles ahead of where you should be. Uh, would you be willing to take a posting? And I said, yeah, I'll take a posting. So I was posted from Fallenbostel in Germany down to Senelager in Germany to the tactical engagement simulation training advisory team. So I did two years teaching direct fire weapons effect simulator. And because I was geographically settled, my wife had a good job, my kids were settled in school. The decision for me was based on my family situation at the time. And because at the time, Scots DG and QRH were still on the Challenger 2, the decision was, was pretty straightforward. I contacted my chain of command and I, I literally walked out the camp gate on a Friday as a Scots DG and walked back in on the Monday morning as QRH. What was that like for you? Because in the British Army, regimental identity means a lot. And Scots DG, you're Scottish. QRH tends to recruit from the Midlands. What was the cultural and social challenge for you and how did you address that? So I'll never forget my pedigree being raised in my early leadership happening in Scots DG. And I, some of the best leaders I've ever came across were in Scots DG and had a massively influential part on my personal development as I moved on in my career. But... I had to effectively compartmentalise my time in Scots DG and just fully fledge myself in the Queen's Royal Azars and embrace it uh, and become a Queen's Royal Azar. Because, of course, as a corporal, you have a leadership responsibility and a command responsibility. And you had to get the buy-in from the team that you're working with and the buy-in from your troop sergeant, staff sergeants and the troop commander. What kind of things did you do to help make that easier? Was it just a case of spending individual time with the individual soldiers within your vehicle? So when I came across the QRH, I was relatively professionally qualified. I was a Challenger 2 tank commander. I was a 120mm gunner instructor. I was a skill at arms instructor. So I brought quite a lot to the party. You so had the credibility. I had the credibility. But... He also had the, the kind of naysayers who had been in the QRH a long time and given me all the, the jazz about being a transferee. So I think I had to utilise my kind of professional capacity and let them see that I was worth my salts. I was there to do a job and I was equally as good as my peers who had been in QRH from the start. You mentioned the junior leadership lessons you'd had in the Scots DG. What kind of lessons did you take from them? Did it mostly come from NCOs? 
when you were junior NCOs or was it from senior NCOs? Was it from officers within Scots DG? So one of the most influential people that I ever came across was my first ever squadron sergeant major, a guy called Cammy Gray, probably one of the best soldiers that I've ever came across and one of the smartest guys I've ever seen. And me as a kind of troublesome young trooper, had quite a lot of dad chats with Cammy Gray and he never taught me right for wrong, but he tried to influence me and make the right decisions. I did make quite a lot of wrong decisions, but he, he kind of forged me into the right kind of path and made me see what was right. So it was a case of when you made mistakes as a young soldier, he was helping coach you into understanding why changing your behaviour and changing things would be good for you as an individual and to kind of mould you into a junior NCO? Yeah, 100%. And the relationship that I had with the squadron sergeant major back then is kind of non-traditional. As a trooper, you wouldn't be friends with your squadron sergeant major, which I wasn't at the time. But subsequently since then, he's out of the army now and remains a very, very good close friend to this day. When you became a sergeant, you ended up having to do light infantry work in Afghanistan. And I believe you were a multiple commander at yeah. the time. And once you got out there, what kind of roles were you undertaking and what did that mean for the way your multiple was operating? What challenges did you find there? So when we deployed, we were ground-holding troops in Lashkigar province. And when you think of the makeup of my multiple at the time, if we look back on, as I said, in the Scots CG when we did the uh, Operation Telex 7, with too many chiefs. I think the balance was done absolutely perfect and I was complimented having a 2IC within my mm. multiple being a guy called Ash Daniels. Ash was selected from the company to go on SCBC, Section Commander's Battle Course in Brecon, uh, as an Armoured Corps soldier. He went on that in the pre-deployment training and then came to my uh, multiple as my multiple 2IC. And when we speak about having the right balance within any organisation, I had Ash there who could complement probably what I was missing as a platoon sergeant, a multiple sergeant, to give us that balance. So this is a, an excellent example of leadership where you are, you're making the decisions, but some of the critical knowledge has come from somebody who you have command over. So it was giving him the psychological safety space to be able to give you that information, maybe give suggestions, maybe useful criticism at times. Yeah, 100%. And we worked absolutely fantastic as a team, myself and Ash, and he did compliment whenever I was working out orders or coming to a formal conclusion that we were going to go forward. Ash would be my right-hand man and making sure that I made the right decision backed up by his professional knowledge. And ultimately, as the commander, you had to make the decision, but you needed to have developed a strong team underneath you in order to make that possible. Yeah, that's correct. So from platoon sergeant, you then went on to become a sergeant instructor, then a squadron quartermaster sergeant. So you've gone from being a corporal and a sergeant looking after troops with a commander responsibility to then being more in the logistics cell. How was that experience for you? So... I came back from Afghanistan and it was a bit of out the frying pan into the fire. I came back about six weeks early, had my uh, post-operational tour leave, did a quick bit of pre-course in Germany and then I was sent to the AFE Gunnery School in Lulworth to endure a five-month cadre uh, effectively to become a schools instructor. It's very, very stressful. Uh, you're teaching at a schools level for that five months to ensure that you're up to the required standard to be a schools instructor and then deliver gunnery training to field army. That's ranging from phase two recruits to junior commanders, 
commanders, troop leaders and gunnery instructors. And so within that, you must have had to do a lot of self-leadership and become very self-aware about how you were teaching and learning new ways of teaching. Yeah, you had to adopt a very agile approach to your, your leadership skills and your teaching skills because ultimately delivering um, lessons to phase two recruits is significantly different to delivering lessons to troop leaders who have just come from Sandhurst. You need to be very adaptable in your approach and understand your audience to ensure that you're pitching your lessons at the right level. What was that experience in terms of how it then shaped you going forwards? Did Do you think it made you a more well-rounded leader as well as a more well-rounded instructor? It, it definitely did because, you, as I said, you had to understand your audience. And from a kind of leadership perspective down the gunnery school, it's more of a coaching and mentoring type leadership that you're doing down there because you're trying to get the best out of your students to ensure that ultimately they go forward and pass all their mandated tests, pass their weapon handling tests, and then you let them loose and they end up live firing on tank ranges. So coaching and mentoring, but making sure that you've got a, a firm grasp on what they're doing, because ultimately, if they do it wrong, and when it comes to armoured fighting vehicles, it's, it can be catastrophic. It can go on pretty fast. And then you went on to being the squadron quartermaster sergeant. What does that role feel like when you're in a squadron? Because you're sat outside the main chain of command of you have the tanks, the troops, the company headquarters, and you're sitting just to the side of that. What kind of role did you have day to day? Was there a leadership aspect within that? So there was a leadership aspect uh, within uh, my SQMS department. But ultimately, because the, the kind of G4 space within a squadron is it's filled by quite often, more often than not, soldiers who are injured and can't actually be on the tanks. So you're working with some quite tricky situations to make sure that you're managing the guys who have got their medical appointments, etc., etc., but still trying to deliver the best for the squadron. It's more of a standoff approach to leadership, I'd say, within the G4 sphere. And I use the, the example, it's the hat that you wear. And the hat that I wore within um, the SQMS department, I don't think I raised my voice more than half a dozen times in the, the three years that I was in SQMS because that's not the role that you're in. The G1 is done by the squadron sergeant major. Your G4 is effectively, you're like the, the dad of the squadron, making sure that they've got all the right kit and equipment, making sure that they've got all the... The, the snacks and stuff when it comes to replans, making sure that everything's done on time and make sure that the delivery is 100% there. So from being the SQMS in C Squadron, you moved over to D Squadron to be the Squadron Sergeant Major. And that is a role that whenever you're entering any squadron or company, that's the role or rank that you kind of look up to as the embodiment of soldiering because that's the closest person that you see that is at that level. Uh, and also you're responsible for discipline. How did you find that experience of moving into that role, given your own experiences of having challenges with behaviour when you were an early trooper? So I'll refer back to it's the hat that you wear. I had to take off that SQMS hat and put on that squadron sergeant major hat and be that firm G1 leader. But my approach to that was firm but fair. And again, understanding your workforce, understanding every single soldier within your squadron and making sure that you, you catered for their needs in every aspect. So when you encountered a disciplinary challenge, it wasn't just a case of just the corrective discipline. 
or just the encouragement? It was understanding, is there something else behind this that might be driving this behaviour? Yeah, so I think we've evolved as an army. We're not in that draconian era where it was just shout, shout, shout. I think it's more understanding your workforce to get the best out of them. And there's there's a saying that one of my uh, friends says to me, there's no such thing as a problematic soldier. It's a soldier with problems. And it's understanding um, that there might be something happening at home. There might be parents back home, it might be grandmother back home, they might be ill, which is causing and having an impact on their behaviour as a soldier. So it's understanding your soldiers to make sure that you get the best out of them. So while you were Squadron Sergeant Major, you had an incident that was a disciplinary incident that led to you having a reduction in rank back down to Staff Sergeant. That's correct. Can you talk me through a little bit about that, about how it felt initially when that occurred and then as you moved on, how that changed for you? So I was involved in an alcohol-related incident in London, which ultimately seen me step out of the core values of the British Army. I overstepped the mark, which, as you've alluded to, ultimately resulted in me being reduced in rank. It was a, a massive shock to me. I was suspended for work and removed from post as squadron sergeant major. So you know, how did you feel at the time after it occurred? And what was that process like for you? So initially, when it happened, it was it was anger, it was shock, and um, blame. Uh, I was like, why other people have done similar things and nothing's happened to them? Why me? This isn't right. Trying to blame other people for my actions. And if you think of the kind of grief cycle by Kubler Ross, I was in that kind of blame era, and it took me a long time probably about a year, for it to resonate with me that it wasn't actually anybody else's fault or the way that they acted or the, the steps that they took when my incident occurred. Do a bit of root cause and corrective analysis. Ultimately, it was my behaviour that made the other people act the way that they act. And so you had to take ownership for your own behaviours. Yeah, massively. And as I said, it took me about a year and it changed me as a person. And I've said to people, 2019 was probably one of the worst years of my life. But on reflection, it was probably one of the best years of my life as well because I was so laser focused on what's next. I need to be the next RQ if I want to be the next RSM. Like, so focused on that. And I actually lost sight of what was actually what you should actually be doing in life. I neglected my family. I missed family weddings. I missed family funerals, birthday parties, etc., etc. because in my mind, I had to be at regimental duty. I had to be seen. I had to be seen at every single event. And as I said, I massively neglected my own family. Now, whether you do four years in the army, whether you do 12 years in the army, 24 years in the army, you do a full service commission and get out after 35 years, your family's going to be there long after the army. And I think there is times in the army where you need to put the eye first, but there's equally times in the army where you need to take a step back and put your family first. When you reflect now on the causes of the incident, and you've alluded to it, transgressing behaviour, the appropriateness and the professionalism of the armed forces, over time as you've reflected on it, has it become not just a case of, oh, I'd better not do something like that again, but it's altered you at a sort of deeper level when you've started to think about what drives your behaviour. 
Yeah, and I think I'll sound quite corny when I say this, but it has massively changed me as a person. I used to be a act first, think second. And then after that incident, I massively think before I act. And it's it's changed my behaviour in the sense that even my, my language when I'm speaking round about individuals and understanding that what you and I have a conversation about and we can speak quite openly about, somebody who's listening into that conversation might take offence to that. So it's understanding your surroundings and making sure that you're 100% whiter than white. And as I said, stepping out of the core values of the British Army, I had a conversation with a commanding officer in the cookhouse in Tidburth at the time, and I said to the commanding officer, I said, well, ultimately I can go back in and score in St Major. And he, he kind of looked at me and said, absolutely not. And I thought, well, why not? Surely I can go back in and score in St Major as if nothing's happened. And the commanding officer at the time, Colonel Nick Cowley, was like, Mr Russell, he said, you need to be the pinnacle of G1 discipline within your organisation. You have stepped out of line, so I cannot put you back into that role. And at the time, I was a bit like, why? But on reflection, um, when I look back now, I'm like, his decision was 100% on point. How could I stand there as the as the pinnacle of G1 and try and enforce it within my squadron when I've got no credibility in any capacity because I have overstepped the mark? And from then you went to Bombington where you're working on trials and development of new vehicles. What did you learn through there and how did the structure of the workforce give you new skills as you move forward? So down at the Armour Trials and Development Unit, I was working um, on the Ajax platform as part of the user engagement team. With that, you're working massively with defence industry, so predominantly general dynamics. Their um, organisational structure is a makeup of ex-military personnel, civilians who have never been in the army, engineers, etc., etc. And understanding your workforce and sussing them out straight away to make sure you get the best out of that workforce. You can't go in with the approach because you're you're running ranges um, with civilians on the range, etc. And you can't go in with the kind of military mentality. You shout, they do. Because quite clearly, when you're working with a diverse organisation for loads of different backgrounds, quite simply, you'll get nothing out of them. So it's making sure that you understand your language, making sure you understand your behaviours and working to get the best out of that team. And from there, you did actually go back into being a squadron sergeant major, but down in Bovington. What was that experience like for you? And what did you take from your previous lessons and mistakes that helped you there? So after being reduced in rank to staff sergeant and took and got the post in at the Armour Trials and Development Unit, I was very fortunate that 12 months later, I came back off the Warrant Officer Class 2 board and promoted back to W2. I wanted, because I, I personally felt that I had a bit of unfinished business as squad and sergeant major, so I submitted my post and preference performer and asked for the job at the Royal Armour Corps Training Regiment um, as a squad and sergeant major. I was very fortunate to be given that second chance and went into the role of squad and sergeant major within Waterloo Squadron. In that role, we had at any one time circa 300 phase two recruits, ITTs, initial trade trainees, and had a permanent staff of 46 staff across all different cap badges and corps. I had Queen Alexandra Royal Army Nursing Corps, Royal Artillery, engineers, and then traditional Royal Armour Corps soldiers. Having learned from the experience that from failing as a squadron sergeant major initially and everything that I learned at the Armour Trials and Development Unit, it 
gave me a diverse approach to how I was going to lead my team and how to get the best out of them. Coaching, mentoring and trying to get the best out of them effectively. And even from simple things that they submit and work to me, um, whether it be an admin instruction or a rasp for a range, going over it with that fine tooth comb and not red penning it, but getting them in and saying, look, you've gone wrong here, this is how you could do it better, to having their objectives and preferences sent to me on JPA um, with minor spelling mistakes and incorrect grammar, rather than just reject it and send it back to them and tell them to change it, reject it, go down and get them and bring them up to the office and say, look, this is where we need to go with that. This is what you want to be aiming for to try and create the best team possible. And within that team, you're also the mentor and leader in the other aspects of their development as non-commissioned officers. So with that experience you had on the behaviours and the values and standards, is that something that then became a very strong part of you coaching them? You talked about your squadron sergeant major back when you were a trooper and how he helped develop you as an individual. And was that then something that you took a lot of responsibility for? Yeah, 100%. And what I actually did to try and enhance the workforce is I uh, run quite a few events where I got external speakers to come in and speak to not only the permanent staff, but also the, the phase two recruits, the ITTs. I had a very good friend of mine um, from the PT Corps, Sergeant Stu King, come down to the Royal Armour Corps Training Regiment and deliver a presentation at uh, the LGBTQ plus network. And I'm all about enhancing information and making, trying to give them more tools so that when they go forward, they're armed better to serve their men and women underneath them in the future. So it's making them aware of the diversity within the regiment or whatever organisation they're in and then making it more inclusive. How are you enabling inclusivity within your regiment without showing preference or prejudice? So again, understanding your workforce. So at the Royal Armour Corps Training Regiment, we had uh, very diverse from single male parent soldiers to single female parent soldiers and not being and I won't use the word, I wouldn't say being lenient towards them, but understanding the dynamic within your workforce. For instance, when writing the duties, I would have a, a close conversation with these individuals and say, look, what can you provide me? Rather than me saying, right, you're going to do this, because it's understanding it and knowing that they've got childcare issues, they've got kids going to stay with their other parent. So understanding that and not being biased towards them and saying, right, well, because you're a single parent, you only get three duties this month and then one of the other soldiers gets five duties a month. That's not how I've done it. It's by building that bond and building that relationship and having the understanding of um, your workforce and then translating that to make sure that it's a fair organisation to work in. So as I look back over your kind of leadership that you've developed throughout your career, the thing that really strikes me is how important trust is and how through transgressing the values, standards and behaviours, you lost trust and in doing so that made your team less effective. Would you say that's how leadership works for you? 100%. And as we refer to, as you, you said there, so my failing, ultimately, I completely lost the trust of my chain of command up the way and down the way. Uh, so, as I said, the, the, there was no way I could go back into that role. But building the trust back up has effectively shaped me and hopefully I will do better in the future. OK, so we always have three quickfire questions that we like to ask people. How would you spend your perfect Sunday? So, perfect Sunday for me would be 
relaxing with my wife, my children, taking the dogs out, going up to the yard, just enjoying life. But ultimately, my Sundays consist of preparation for the following week. So back end of Sunday, I would be pressing my kit, getting all my ducks in a row ready to rock and roll for the following week. What books, films or podcasts have taught you the most about leadership or that you refer others towards when you're discussing that? So I do a lot of travelling and I'm quite a big advocate of audiobooks. Two leadership audiobooks that stick out to me, quite cliche that a lot of people have read them, would be Turn the Ship Around and Leadership as Language from Captain David Marquette. And another couple of audiobooks that I've listened to, not so much leadership, but more about mindset, is Eat the Frog by Brian Tracy, The Chimp Paradox by Professor Steve Peters, uh, and then one that everybody likes is You Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. And if you had one piece of advice for Trooper or Lance Corporal Russell, what would it be? <sighs> That's a tough one. So I think I would go back and say to him, listen to what your leaders are telling you. You don't know all the answers. You may think that you do. I was quite a, a brash and quite a bullshit Lance Corporal and Corporal quite involved in the couple's mess as well. But I would say just slow it down a little bit. Think about what you're doing. And the biggest one I would say is focus on your family because ultimately your family will be here way past the green machine and they're the ones that need time invested in them. W02 Colin Russell, thanks so much. Cheers. Chatting to W02 Russell, there are a couple of things that really struck me. The first was how he learned from other leaders, his initial squadron sergeant major. But then later, when he had his reduction in rank and he was trying to develop self-awareness, some of that required self-awareness coming from his commanding officer, who told him he wouldn't be able to go back in his squadron sergeant major in regiment. And it can be very easy when we think we have self-awareness based on our own internal reflection. But to really get good self-awareness, we need to see ourselves through other people's eyes. And it was only when that happened that WO2 Colin Russell was able to reflect more deeply. The other thing that really struck me was the importance of trust. Trust both going up the chain of command, but also for the people that you're in command of. You need trust to build that strong team, and it can be easily broken. In this case, it was through transgressing the values and standards of the army, being appropriate and professional at all times. And it was only through that later self-awareness that WO2 Colin Russell was able to rebuild that to become an embodiment of those values, standards and behaviours and then be able to build a strong team founded in trust. This is The Human Advantage, presented and produced by me, Ash Bardwaj of Digital Dandy and co-produced by Lucy Ditchment of Feast Collective on behalf of the Centre for Army Leadership. What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army or the United Kingdom government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed the episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it and maybe even share it on social media. For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening.